What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we have Brian Walsby, and he is the dude that drew the cover for the Norco Comp. He also did a bunch of uh, classic art, you know, like uh, he drew for Seven Seconds, he drew for the Melvins, drew for a bunch of people. And uh, so we're going to talk about him uh, doing that stuff, and then also he played drums in the band Scared Straight, and he played bands in some late 80s bands, and... Uh, yeah, he's a total interesting dude, and so that is this week on the pod. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, please like, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share with your friends. Um, you know, let everyone know this pod is going on. We're still trying to gain traction, and uh, so let everyone know. Please repost it on uh, all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you do. But uh, mostly just tell your friends and your family and whoever would be interested in listening to this stuff. Um, if you'd like to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and uh, become a monthly contributor. And uh, those are my personal heroes. They donate a little bit of money every month, and uh, they really help out the pod and keep it going. I could not do it without that because otherwise I would be losing money every month. And uh, <laughs> we're trying to keep this thing going. So, and I've been trying to do uh, bonus episodes and all that. So I hope that uh, the patrons are enjoying that. Um, yeah, let's get on with the podcast. This is Brian Walsby. One hundred eighty-five miles south. A hardcore punk rock podcast. Hello. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Hey, Zach. How you doing? I'm good. I got you uh, live, unless you want to restart. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for for, uh, taking the interest and giving me a, a call. Yeah, uh, it'll be nice. It'll be nice to talk to a human being during these weird times. So hopefully, uh, spinning old stories will take everyone's minds off of uh, the bizarreness of these current times. Yeah, I know everything is so weird out there right now, and and I guess with you mentioning that, we should go full disclosure and say that we're recording this on March eighteenth, because by the time it airs, okay. we might all be dead. Man, that would be super cool. Our last words ever to the world, <laughs> talking about talking about whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, but, uh, it's part of the the reason of doing something like this is to get, you know, primary source data on people. You know. Yeah, um, we all might be we all might be dead in two weeks. You know, who knows? But you know. Yeah. Well, I'll make but, sure, uh, I'll make sure I upload this thing and set it to uh, auto air whenever uh, it's scheduled. <sighs> So even if even make if we're sure you gone, send it to Doug, make, make sure you send it to Doug Moody. Yeah, I know. You know he he's been uh, he's been the real white whale of who I've been trying to get, and uh, he tur- oh yeah he, he turned it down because he said that Mystic, Mystic has a podcast, and I tried to I tried to listen to their podcast, and and it was just really a weird thing. It was the Doug Moody thing is really strange because it's like even when like all the people that you probably talked to that talked about Doug Moody and and now you're talking to me, like, I don't know about anybody else, but we all just thought, or I did at least, I just thought, what exactly is this guy 
why is this guy so interested in, you know, hanging out with people half his age and putting out, you know, it, it just like, what exactly is this guy getting, getting out of it? You know, I, and I just remember thinking it was just really weird that we were meeting some weird older guy, but you know, back then, like if you're like 18 years old and you meet somebody that's like 25, that's, you know, they might as well have been 90 years old. Yeah. But he and, was probably, was this, okay. So if, if you were, what age were you in like 1984? Oh gosh. I don't even know. Um, like 19. Okay. And so, and Maybe. he was, he was probably in his fifties. I was like 18. I was like 18. Okay. I was like one of the old, I was like one of the slightly older guys, but I wasn't the oldest. Okay. And then he would have been the oldest in, guy. And Doug Moody, like at that time, he was probably in his fifties. Maybe late forties, early fifties or something okay. like that. So yeah. I, I th- just, I just couldn't really figure it out, but you know, he seemed nice enough, but the whole thing was just kind of weird. Anyway, I think, I think, was... I think that he would explain it that, uh, he, he thinks that the punk of like the eighties was like, uh, like a lot of like the blues musicians of like the fifties. Like you're just, you're kind of getting them in or the R and B and you're just getting them into the studio and kind of seeing what hits. Right. And yeah, you know, if you give them studio time, you basically have the rights to their records. And, uh, <laughs> I mean that, yeah. that's what it is, right? You're, you're, so it's so I don't I don't know if it's total explo- exploitation because I don't know if any of that stuff really sold. But oh, it wasn't exploitation. Anybody that anybody that was asked to do a record did so, I'm sure willingly. I know we did. You know, no. like we were. I think we all knew what that it was not going to. You know, like we all were like, yeah, this is probably going to be kind of sketchy. But you know, we. I don't know about anybody else, but we didn't have the ability to put out our own record or even learn how to do it. I don't think. So it was like, you know, it was like a free record for nothing. And, uh, I don't think any of us really thought too much beyond that. Like, I think we all knew what the deal was like, and, and, you know, like a lot of the bands on mystic, um, you know, the production of all those records for the most part just weren't really very good, but it was still exciting. You know, it was like, Oh man, these weird shady people in Hollywood want to, have us record in their kind of crappy studio, but you know, we didn't have anything to compare it to. So every moment of it was exciting, you know? So, uh, um, you know, and also I think that a lot of the bands that ended up being on mystic, you know, I don't think scared straight was going to be, you know, courted by SST records or danger house anytime, anytime soon, you know? So like, it's like, well, you know, we should just do this, you know? And, uh, at least that's my take on it. I don't know about a lot of the other people, but uh, I remember most of the people were not very pleased about how things were done, and and they're, you know rightfully so. But you know, I don't think I don't think any of us had any real you know high hopes for uh, being treated fairly or or whatever. You know, I think we were just happy that we were going to have somebody put out a nine song. <laughs> A nine song seven inch with a Steppenwolf cover <laughs> that uh, half of which has faded away, you know. So it was, you know, it was exciting. You know? Yeah, I mean, um, who, who else was going to put out the Rat Pack seven inch? Nobody. He's going to put out a Manifest Destiny twelve inch. You know, <laughs> That's Frontier. Pr- that was pretty good, though. No. That one was pretty good. I think I, I think the ones that probably I liked the most, I at the times they were kind of our mentors. So it was the other two, What Happens Next record, which I, you know, I still think is a pretty good record. 
Um, the RKL stuff, I think, even though that first record sounds god fucking awful, RKL are usually the best band from that, you know, even though they were from Santa Barbara, you know, they were, to me, live and stuff, they were like the best band. Uh, so I think, like, material wise and stuff, they were like really good. And that Dr. No Plug and Jesus record, obviously, you know, somebody must have been around to make sure that it sounded pretty good. So. So I, I would say those, and also the False Confession record, I thought was pretty good too. Yeah, the seven inch. Like, there was like, yeah, there was definitely, and all those guys were cool and everything, and we, you know, kind of knew them, and we mainly knew the old repute people. They, for whatever reason, um, they were the people that we knew. Like the Doctor No guys, they were like adults and kind of scared me actually. <laughs> they obviously drank and had sex and maybe did drugs and stuff, and. I think the bass player, his meal was nice. And then the other guys were, uh, I don't know. They they were just, they were obviously the adults. Sure. Sure. <laughs> the, the, the adults that maybe weren't positive, I guess, you know? So, well, they weren't a positive so band. They weren't a positive band. So maybe they, they, li- they lived no. that angry lifestyle. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's kind of funny because like I moved away like in 1986, and you like the way I'm just like talking. I'm not even giving you a chance to. Ask. I should probably let you uh, get a question. But no, I moved no, away no. in 1986, and it's like I just like all the stuff about Oxnard and Nardcore and the fact that I drew that cover. There's a funny story behind that. Um, you know, it's just kind of interesting because like it's been so long, and like. It's there's been all this activity that still goes on to this day, and a lot of it features some of those people that I kind of knew from back then. So that's that's cool. That's just it's just kind of funny, you know. It's like that stuff has, uh, you know, those punk rock records have have uh, a lot of legs on them, I guess. You know, so that's cool. Yeah, totally. How how what year or how old were you when you got into punk and hardcore? I think like. I was always into like rock music and stuff, and and um, I think toward the end of the seventies and stuff, I, I instead of getting into like hardcore, like around eighty, I, I think it was like eighty one when I finally started buying those records. But before that, I was kind of like uh, I was into like rock music, and then like I went to high school in Simi Valley. And I met these like pretty enlightened new wave of British heavy metal kind of artistic metalhead weirdos uh-huh. that were in my art class in tenth grade, and it was them and also the late photographer Naomi Peterson that took all these pictures for SST Records. Sure, the, you know the name. Well, she lived in Simi Valley, and she was like the only. And before punk rock, she was like the only punk rock person that was nice to me during that time. So it was like sort of like her. And these this three or four like new wave of British heavy metal guys, and they got me into like Motorhead, and somebody gave me the first Venom record and Angel Witch, and the first two Iron Maiden records. I remember seeing Killers and just looking at it and just going, "There's just no way I'm not going to like this." I just have a feeling this is going to be great, and it was. It was the most incredible record at the time. And then right after that, '81 to '82, that's when you know, like, I think I bought Damage by Black Flag in the early months of 1982 and that just completely blew my mind so much that I listened to the first side for like a month straight before I even got to the second side which was 
twice as good, you know, like, oh my God, this is amazing. You yeah. know, yeah. It, did, it didn't matter how, how it sounded. It was just like, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And through that, you know, I just started, you know, buying more records and, you know, um, I think by the end of 82, I was aware, or 82 to 83, I was aware of like Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll because Maximum Rock and Roll just came out and I just started buying Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll and that was just like opening up this whole new dimension into this crazy world of just weirdos and all this other stuff. So I just, I, I didn't drive. I didn't know how to drive until I was 30, which is pretty fucking hilarious now looking back. I was one of those guys. Awesome. So when I was young, I would take I would take a bus from Simi Valley through the, the Santa Susana Pass into San Fernando Valley and just take a bus down to, there's like a couple of record stores in the valley that had punk rock records. And occasionally I would even go down to Hollywood and buy records down there, like off the Melrose. Do you so remember the name of the stores? Was, um, I want to say Vinyl Fetish, maybe. And I think there's the one called Slip Disc, but I'm not sure which was which. Okay. Like, I'm not sure about the location, but and I could actually have some of that wrong. But um, I want I think Vinyl Fetish was the one on, on Melrose, and they had everything. So, like, if I read about the big boys and, and Flipside, you know what? I go down there, there was Lullabies Make the Brain Grow. <laughs> You know, an album I was like, oh, it's five bucks. I'm gonna buy that. Oh, there's the SSD controls, get the way record. There's the first Scream album. So I would just buy stuff based on maybe what I saw on Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll early on. But after a while, you couldn't really trust what Maximum Rock and Roll said because they would give pivotal records really bad reviews because they weren't, you know, one, two, a few kind of, you know, the same thing. Yeah, once, but, um, once they didn't, was, that, once they didn't like Agnostic Front, you're like, oh, I can't believe anything they said. Uh, not Agnostic Front because I never really thought too much. I mean, they're okay, but more like, uh, more like uh, uh, Black Flag when they did the My War record and Tim Yohannan, who was a nice guy. Um, he was always really nice to me. He said something like, "This sounds like Iron Maiden impersonating Black Flag on a bad day," and it's like, man, this sounds nuts. Nothing Black like my war sounds nothing like Iron Man. <laughs> no. There's like you know, <laughs> no. you know, there's absolutely nothing in they, they have nothing in common at all. Unless you think that just because something isn't you know one two fuck you hardcore, then it all sounds the same. But uh, you know, um, but that was yeah, that was sort of how I, I learned about that stuff. And also Ronnie Bingenheimer listening to his radio show. Like you know, I'm sure plenty of people you talked to said the same thing. And I'm going to be another one of those people that says Ronnie Bingenheimer was a Pied Piper. And oddly enough, before discovering Ronnie, I used to listen to Dr. Demento. It was on the same night, Sunday night. And Dr. Demento would play like weird punk rock stuff because he thought it was funny. Like, you know, I first heard the Ramones on Dr. Demento and things like that. So it was mainly from reading Flipside, Maximum Rock and Roll, and listening to Ronnie Bingenheimer and just sort of keeping my, my ears open and I did that, and I, I I wasn't even able to go to a punk rock show until the end of '83. Yeah, and you know, I, you, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I you know, like I, I at, at that point I started realizing that you could write to people, and and you know I drew stuff, so I was like, well, you know, I'm this weirdo that doesn't have any friends, so I'll, I can just write letters to people through the punk rock scene. And the heavy metal, the underground heavy metal scene at the same time also, it was like sort of the same thing. You know, it was very grassroots. And so I just would 
I was like, well, I can draw, you know, I can, I can draw stuff. And so that's pretty much what I did. I would just like write letters to people and stuff. And I got stuff printed in some of these big fanzines before I actually went to a show. I just drew stuff imagining what I thought these shows must be like. So that's why everybody in those early drawings, everybody's happy and smiling and has the same haircut. And there's some long haired metal guy there. And, uh, you know, a couple of really badly drawn young ladies <laughs> in the crowd that are always wearing hats or whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, and then eventually I went to my first show and it was nothing like what I drew, but it was kind of enough like it. And then I, I met, you know, um, Scott Rudinsky, uh, and Dennis and those guys, they have like a, a pre, well, you talked to Scott, right? So he, he told you, he told you, uh, I think the history, but, uh, they had a band that played at the local Simi Valley roller rink or something. Okay. And I went down there and I just, I drew and I was like, that's how I used, that's what I used to make friends. Like, hey, I can draw stuff. Look. And they were there and I met Scott and Dennis and I think they just graduated ninth grade or whatever. And they had their little band, uh, secure our future. And, um, and then I, I, I sort of ended up hitting it off of Scott. I mean, I liked all those guys, you know, and I ended up joining scared straight when Scott took over as a singer. Um, and I liked, I liked all of them, but, um, Scott was the, guy in particular that I hung out with the most and I think he liked uh, yeah, we just kind of got along really well and he would always come over and I was always getting mail and uh, getting packages and badly mangled demos from all over the, the world and country and he was into it and we would just hang out and answer mail and listen to uh you know, whatever, some Italian hardcore band or, you know, some badly mangled demo. We were, you know, we were really into it. It was really exciting. I I look back and I, I can't really say that um, there was anything else I would have rather had been doing. It was a lot of fun, you know. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't fun like, hey, we're, we're getting fucked up or, we're, you know, we're going to do this and do that. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was exciting to be a part of that, you know. And uh, Scott basically drove my ass all over the place. And uh, we had a few other friends, and we'd, we'd hop in his blue pickup truck, and he would drive us all over the place, and we'd see shows. And uh, I owe Scott Radinsky a lot, because, you know, he really sort of had no problem driving my non-driving ass all over the place. And we just, you know, it was cool. We, we, we saw all kinds of shows. And, um, and then eventually that led to them asking me, to, to play which was you know pretty exciting because I, I looked up to those guys and everything yeah yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I, I'll, I'll get there I got it mapped a little bit so let's talk okay. about uh, any any standout shows you remember going to with with Scott oh yeah well yeah we, we went and saw Black Flag at Perkins Palace okay and do, when, you, do you remember, the, line, do you remember my, the lineup at all oh yeah it was, uh, it was well uh, it was after the My War. It was during the My War period. It was like their first big show there, and I wasn't able to see them before that because, you know, like I said, I, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't able to go to shows. I didn't really know anybody. So, like, I would say 1984 in general was like the biggest year. I was trying to make up for last time. So, like, we 
we saw Decroizen at the Cafe de Grand. We we went to the Cafe de Grand a lot, so we saw we saw a lot of the same people there. You know, we you know like the NoFX guys. We you know we knew them somehow. We always saw those guys, uh, the Justice League guys. We saw those guys, Ryan and uh, what's his name, Mark. Well, yep. Mark wasn't in the band. He was just like a friend, uh, a friend first. Yeah, uh, in the band kind later, kind of like my role. Yeah, he came in the band later. But we saw Septic Death, Condemned to Death, Condemned to Death from San Francisco. They were really good. Uh, that stands out uh, in particular. We saw Seven Seconds at the Cafe de Grand. They were they were really good. Um, Sam Hain, uh, Jody Foster's Army, Necros. Uh, a lot, you know. We 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 just tried to see Raw Power. We saw Raw Power, the Italian band, a few times. I think we went to uh, see the 1984 Olympic Auditorium uh, International Show in 1984 when the Olympics came to Los Angeles and the people that ran the city tried to clean it up. And then there was a show at the, you know, we were always at the Cafe de Grand for whatever reason because sure. everybody played there. So we spent a lot of time there. So I would say, you know, we saw BGK from uh, Holland, I believe. I think that's where they're from. We saw a lot of stuff, and then, of course, we saw, like, you know, we, we would start going to Oxnard, and we saw all those bands and stuff. And I think through that and writing letters, that's how we, oh, that's how I, I remember meeting, like, some of the people out there. And, uh, and, and but mainly it was a few people. Yeah, and so, but, uh, did, is there any punk rock art from you other than in the fanzines before you do the Nardcore comp? Not really. I mean, I just do. I I just do so much stuff for people, but I didn't really hold on to anything. Okay. And I just dashed everything off. So I, I, you know, I didn't really save anything. You know. So like, every once in a while, people will ask if if I have any of that stuff, and I don't. And uh, what usually happens is people will send it to me now, so I can see just how, uh, how much, how much better. <laughs> I've gotten in a 35 year period. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> like, good. I just dashed all that. Well, you know, I was just, I was a fan, you know, and, and, uh, you know, like writing letters and drawing stuff. That was like sort of the backbone of, of all that stuff. You know, I mean, like, I mean, you had like the bands and the shows and stuff, but and that was important. But all the people that networked, that was really important. And nobody ever really talks about that stuff as much as, um, I think they should, you know? So, a lot of that artwork was just dashed off under those circumstances, you know, just, you know, and I didn't really save anything. Um, I'm not really sure how much of it was worth saving. You know, like I, I drew for a long time and then I relocated to North Carolina and then like, I kind of started playing drums more and I just got tired of drawing, you know, punk rock, unite the scene cartoons and, you know, times were changing and, I ended up just not drawing for a few years and that was actually kind of terrible because <laughs> I just, you know, I, it, it didn't occur to me that I could try to draw something else, you know, but I was <laughs> sure. just burned out, I guess, <laughs> you know, and then like enough history had passed and a few people that used to see my stuff. Uh, there's this guy, Chris Sherry, that you might know about. He's the artist guy that does all the descendant stuff these days. Sure. Um, well, he, he, he called me out of the blue one day. This is like pre-internet, pre-whatever. And he was like, hey, man, I was a big fan. What happened to you? And I was like, oh, I don't know. 
And it was that phone call, you know, becoming friends with them that made me decide to like try to take things seriously and get back into it. And then that's when I improved, I guess. So, so yeah, so, so the answer to the question, I didn't save anything. <laughs> uh, these, these days, it's a different story. Sure. So how, how did it come about you uh, getting asked to draw the Nardcore cover? Okay. Well, through Scott, we, I think Scott was kind of a little bit tighter with Doug Moody than some of the other people that ended up recording. I think he was too, because he, he, he mentions that uh, he was actually the one that helped Doug move from Hollywood down to San That's Diego. That's right. He moved him, he, he moved him to San Diego, like uh, right, right after I moved away. Um, it was, I think through him. And like, I think one day I, 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 I listened to the interview that, that you did with him. And I think that his story is true. That's probably what happened. I think they just, Hey, this guy draws, do you want to draw the cover for an art corner mate or whatever? And I went, sure. So I drew something yeah. and it was in a heavy pencil, mm-hmm. like a whole cover. It was that idea. But what happened was I gave him the super detailed, better looking thing. And what the cover basically is, is somebody tracing over that with a, a pen. Yeah. Because like the actual original artwork, I guess, wouldn't reproduce the way it should. So whatever that cover is that ended up coming out was just somebody at Mystic drawing over my artwork. And that was what they used. And I didn't know that. So like when the record came out, I was like, here you go, mate. You know, he's, <laughs> he's British. Here you go, mate. Yep. Here's a few hardcore covers for you, mate. And I looked at the cover and I was just mortified, but I was too embarrassed to say anything. Cause obviously sure. that was not what I gave him. but I was like, well, it was still a cover, you know? Yeah. And I was just like, holy, what? holy shit. What? These guys really dropped the fucking ball on this. Discover thing, but you know, it was a free record. So. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's sacrilegious, right? If going over your stuff well, with a heavier pen, yeah, I love that story because it's like, you know, not like whatever I drew was so great, you know, initially, but you know, it was better than what, what, uh, what ended up being the cover. And I gotta tell you, I've redrawn that cover. Not just for Tony Cortez, but for a few like I've redrawn the Nardcore cover about ten fucking times. Yeah, well, you just did it again for uh, for Fred for the It's Alive re-release thing. Yeah, yeah, for Fred Hammer. Yeah, I was like, will you, will you redraw this again, sure. And then the Seven Seconds cover that I drew, I I drew a cover for one of their records. Yeah, but before you um, do before you do the cover for the Seven Seconds record, you actually you do the drawing on the insert for the crew. Also in '84, right? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's first. Yeah, the crew. Yeah, the crew came first. I just gave that to Kevin, and I guess later I drew something that was supposed to be more serious, and I gave it to. Uh, I gave that to Kevin too. And when do you remember meeting him? I wrote letters to him. Okay. I, I think I read a few scene reports in Maximum Rock and Roll, and I think I had heard the first record, and also. I think the the seven you know, inch the first they, seven they were, inch they were what was that the first seven inch yeah skins brains and guts but right. I think it was committed for life was the record I liked because it was like they were like the bands that you know there was minor threat and then there were the bands that kind of sort of were influenced in some way by minor threat but not not completely and I think that that record in particular was 
a pretty good, you know, you can tell that they took a few cues from Minor Threat, you know, and uh, well, they that put record a, it's, a, it's a solid spin, though. They put enough of their own stuff on it. Those are great. Oh, yeah. I, I love I, I for Committed for Life. And also, it was kind of, you know, like, it was kind of funny. I mean, like, I've always had kind of a sarcastic sense of humor, I guess. But, sure. um, I mean, it wasn't like I was making fun of it, but like, you know, some of the songs are just kind of funny. They're very, they're very scene centric songs written with concerns for things that are very, you know, punk rock scene centric. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like songs about like bottomless pit, you know, in the pit, you can't be yourself. <laughs> You're an image of what's cool. It's a lot of I mean, it's talking inward. It's talking inward to the scene. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah, it's very scene centric, and I thought it was great. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. So, um, yeah, that's. I, I just read. I just read them. I ended up meeting them later. I, I mean, I didn't really know them super well, you know, but I knew them well enough to where, you know, I hung out with them a few times, and you know, they were cool guys. Yeah. So how uh, did that how did that, that feel though to get like so the nardcore you do that and it gets botched and you feel a little weird yeah. about it. But how how good yeah. does, how good does it feel to have one of your drawings like on the inside of that uh, that's a seminal hardcore record the crew. Yeah, that's what I've been told. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I mean, no, it was cool. You know, I was it was, you know, it was it was um Yeah, there's nothing wrong with any of that at all it was it was pretty exciting you know of course later and and i think those guys would be would agree I, you know later there were you know weird feelings that's the other thing about punk rock you know like everything was done in the spirit of the times and we're all really young so like some stuff and the feelings behind you know some of those things and situations were not handled super great you know really you know and I think I ended up getting resentful, you know, over the uh, seven seconds artwork. But you know, that's just as much my my fault. You know, whatever. You in, know, regards, has, in regards to that one or the next one that you do? Oh, the the cover. The cover. The walk together, rock together. Yeah, because you do walk yeah. together. You you do the original art on the walk together, rock together LP. Um, that right. later get like a year later than they, then they replace it with like. It's like a photo, oh, like a, a new way to a pus head washed, wa- washed colored thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of dumb now. I mean, like everything's fine now. I, I, you know, but there was this very long period of time where I was, you know, kind of a dick and sort of resentful and thought, you know, I just gave it to him, you know? Well, it's, it's water, sure it's water, it, just, it's water on the bridge now. So let's talk about it. Cause I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know the story well, and no one does. So you do, you get asked well, to do the cover no, for a walk. Well, actually, after social media, I made sure people knew the story. And, you know, again, like I said, it was, it wasn't. I would say it wasn't handled particularly well. But you know, it's water under the bridge. You know, I, you know, we ended up talking a little bit through some emails, and you know, I, I just was like, you know, I don't want to be going into my fifties still giving a shit about you know artwork from forty years ago. And you know, some people are like that, so it's just like you know. But but what actually yeah, what actually happened? So you you drew oh, you drew the cover. I just, got, I, I just gave him the artwork, and I just didn't really you know I didn't really specify. Well, here's the artwork. If this record becomes super popular, and he becomes guys become 
giants of, of the punk rock world, I want to cut, you know? Sure, sure. And I, I, and I, I think the BYO people, you know, I've heard, I've listened to enough interviews with those guys where like they didn't have a, um, you know, they probably, there was some weird stuff. I'm, I think they happened between them too. So I think I was like sent like a couple of extra small t-shirts and one record. And that was kind of it. And that's, Oh my gosh. You know, yeah. that was just a situation. I, I, I just, you know, I didn't really specify, well, here's the artwork, but I'm going to be business savvy and ask for these things in case, you know, in case you guys become famous or whatever, you know. Right. But did they, did so, they change the, uh, the, did they change the cover art because you were upset or just because they wanted to? Oh, I never knew. I never knew. Huh. And I never asked, you know. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Probably not. Yeah. Probably, I don't know. But yeah, it's why I'm on the bridge now. I kind of I like both covers, but I like yours more, of course. Thanks. So, well, that's some other cover I've redrawn a million times. So, um, <laughs> and, and we actually, uh, me and my friend Charles, that runs this company called Bifocal Media, we've been friends and worked together on these like t-shirts for a long time, and we actually redrew or I redrew that cover now and uh you know we, we we did a run of those and those sold out instantly and you know and the band was fine with us doing it and you know whatever. So yeah, that that's uh yeah, people like that cover for whatever reason and you know, it's still the same idea, you know, just people smiling and having a good time. So for whatever reason that idea just seems to resonate. Yeah. yeah, the other, the More other. So then, go ahead. Sorry. It, oh, it, go ahead. No, no I'm, I'm bad with a phone thing. I like face to face more, but uh, obviously you're a little sure. far away, so we have to do the phone, and inevitably we're yeah, gonna I'm step on each other a little bit. Yeah, it's three thousand miles away. Yeah. So the other art that you do around the time is you do the second Psycho Seven Inch, uh, Boston Band. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so that's eighty five too, and that's pretty cool because again, like yeah. you're, you're still living in California at the time, so this is a. Uh, a pretty rad yeah. Boston band picking up your stuff. Yeah, I, I, I was, I had a lot of pen pals. You know, I had probably like a hundred people, probably more people that I wrote to regularly to say, hey man, hey, support your scene, dude. Hey, here's my band. Oh, cool. Here's a demo. Oh, here's a record. Hey, do you want to draw this? Sure. You know, like that. And those guys, the guys from Psycho were, you know, I think the drummer and the guitar player were pen pals. And, uh, you know, one of many. So that that's how that happened. They just kind of asked if I would do it. Yeah, and then the only, the other one I wrote down is for '86. You did the the Skeezix, their uh, the Charlie Brown, the Charlie Brown sandwich. Yeah, and, and that's and a I German even, band. And I don't even, right, and I, and I might I don't even remember that. But I, I drew a lot of peanut stuff, and the peanuts people were like big. I was really hugely influenced by Charles Schultz as a kid, and uh, so I always. I really like uh, Peanuts and, um, I don't know, all that stuff was a really big influence. That and uh, Mad Magazine. So, and, I, and I do remember I used to draw Peanuts characters a lot back then. So I think whoever was in that band that wanted me to do it liked that stuff that I was doing. So, you know, that's kind of how that happened. Cool. I want to go back to Scared Straight a little bit. So they, okay. they record the the nardcore songs first and this is when scott was a drummer and their singer like kind of is not around so scott he plays drums and sings on the nardcore songs 
And then after that, actually, no. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. I think. Well, I could be wrong, but I think the drummer. Because I ended up drawing something for the. I had met those guys at that point, knew them, so that I ended up drawing them mm-hmm. when Scott was the singer. And there was a guy named Gary that was the singer before, and Scott played drums. I forgot Gary's last name. Right. And so and, I, uh, I. So. Okay, go on. Sorry. I guess. Oh, that's okay. I, I think. I want to say Gary wrote that, but I'm not sure. Um, but I think he just didn't show up. And, uh, and then Scott was like, oh. I'll, I'll sing. So that was Scott's singing debut. And I think at the time there was this guy named James Harris that replaced Scott on drums. And he didn't last very long, but I think I'm pretty sure he's the guy that played drums on the two Nardcore songs. And there was another song that ended up on one of those We Got yeah, Party we Animals. Got power, we Got Power, We Got we Party. We Got This. Yeah. yeah. So I think he was on, on that song too. Because like, they're kind of excited sounding and a little rushed. And I think Scott was a little, a little tighter. Okay. So I think, I think that was James. I could, I could be wrong, but then James didn't work out. And that's when they asked me. So you but come I, in and you I'm do this. Sure. You come in and you do the seven inch. Right. Do you remember anything about recording it at Mystic? Sure. Well, I, I, um, I use Scott Williams, Scott Williams. I use Scott, <laughs> Scott's drums. Mm-hmm. Scott Rizinski's drums, and uh, I remember we made a big deal out of putting new drum heads on it, and uh, we just recorded those songs, and then the longest song was the Steppenwolf cover, sure. and uh, that was the most that sounded like, you know, you know, it wasn't our song, so it sounded like, oh, this is like a real song, or whatever. Um, I don't really remember too much about it, it was exciting, but it just seemed like we just went in there and did it, and that was it, and then what came out is what came out. Yeah, and no, I don't. And I'm just trying to understand like the timelines and stuff of how things were back then. Like, do you do you record and does it? That, I yeah, it's '84. It comes out in '85. I believe. No, yeah, it comes out in '85. Actually, you know what? You know what? I joined in the end of '84, '85, early like I think February of '85 is when we recorded it, and mm-hmm. then it came out like by the summer. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And how does it feel to like? It's the first piece of music that you're on. Does that feel rad? Oh, like, it's and it was really exciting, you know, in some ways, scared straight, you know, you know, um, we were okay. You know, we were kind of a competent band, nothing really to, you know, I mean, I, I think they got better, uh, as time went on, you know, I, you know, like, but I think for the, you know, for the time, I thought it was, it was good. I mean, I mean, it was exciting because we were just these little kids and, we had a chance to record in the studio and we got a chance to be on a record and it was our record. You know, it's so no matter what, or no matter what history says or the things about that, that were kind of, eh, it was still pretty exciting. So, yeah. you know, in some ways that was the most exciting band I've ever been in just because it was the first one. And it was a real short amount of time. I mean, I was only in the band for like two occasions and neither of them were really very long, but it, you know, back then it seemed like, you know, it seemed like, uh, you know, time was a lot, it seemed a lot longer. <laughs> like when you're younger, time seems to go by a lot slower. So of course, it seemed you... like a long time, but it was like, I, I would say I was in the band for less than a year. And then I like did, I came back and did like a, a, a tour with them at the end of 1985. 
that yeah, that's what I have. Uh, that's what I have lined up next for in yeah. in eighty five. So in eighty five, you go on tour with uh, you go on the Ill Repute tour. Right. Well, no, eighty five. The summer is an Ill Repute tour, and that's mm-hmm. that's that went really well for the first two weeks, and then you've heard that story about everything in Pittsburgh, and all that's true. But that was a real pivotal moment because you know. Everybody went home, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> no, I know." No. So uh, your story is great. So let's let's try to talk yeah. a little bit about that tour, just because I love to have uh, I love to have everyone's paintbrush on it. So can, what oh. do you what do you remember about going on that tour? Like, first off, is this your first time like leaving home? Yes. Okay. Yes, and our parents all let us go, which is which is fucking crazy if you think about it. You know. Things were a lot more lax, or just whatever. I don't know. They were just like, "Hey, we're gonna go. We're eighteen. You know, some of us are seventeen. We're seventeen, nineteen years old. I think the guitar player Steve was twenty-one. And we we're just, like, yeah, we're gonna go across the country. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, they, they let us go, which is, you know, pretty fucking crazy if you think about it. Yeah, and, and do you so remember? So, do you remember any sort of like preparation or? Like we're, you were just along as a drummer, so you're just loading up and going. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were. The tour was booked by the Ill Repute guys, mm-hmm. so we were just. They asked us to play, and then it turned out that Carl didn't want to lose his job or something, so Scott ended up playing drums, right? And uh, doing double duty, and uh, you know, that it was just. It just seemed like it was very sudden. Like, oh, we, we get to go on tour. Okay, cool. And then we did, you know, we just, we just suddenly did. And yeah, it was the three older people guys and us. And then we had a couple of roadies. One of them was a guy from Australia that just showed up <laughs> one day. Like, Hey, Hey, Brian Wells, me mate. We read about you in maximum rock and roll. We came out to Simi Valley to see if there's any shows. Well, there's no shows out here, but come on in. And then one of the guys went home and the other guy stayed and he had a car and we were like, you want to go with us? And he was like, sure. And then the day we left, the car broke down. It was a station wagon. And the adults of the tour, uh, Jim and Tony, I guess maybe John, I'm not sure who, somebody that had a credit card or at least, you know, uh-huh. had some sort of semblance of adult activities. They rented a rental vehicle and came back. But yeah, um, yeah, we just went. We just, we just left and, <laughs> you know, yeah. Hey, well, so- sonically, do you remember? Do you remember how Repute sounded with Scott playing? Because this is after what happens next, and Carl plays like such a a crazy, like loose style. I can't, I, I can't, ima- I can't imagine like a straightforward drummer coming in and playing those "What Happens Next" songs. He did the best he could. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I mean that. Yeah, I mean Carl did have kind of a weird style. And uh, I think Scott did the best he could, given the very short amount of time that him or anybody would have had to prepare for, uh, you know, doing that. Yeah. You know, it, it was fun. You know, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know why he didn't go, but I, I, I think it was probably a job thing. You know, so he was, he was probably the smartest, smartest person. <laughs> you know, but you know, he, he had a real job. You know, it, having a real job probably uh, was a big deal. Yeah, None of us knew that. I think he still has the job. It's because uh, he works for either the the county or the city. He moved up to NorCal now, but he does something for it's like government stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, 
he took it he took it pretty seriously obviously i know so now he so, can he can re- he can probably retire soon at, at 55 or something the smartest the smartest man in the room <laughs> do you do you remember any do you remember any standout shows from that tour yeah well they repeat did okay they weren't they weren't as good without uh without carl but they were still pretty good um so that was always fun watching them. As far as Scared Straight, we played we played one show in Lincoln, Nebraska. That was really good. You know, it was like really the height of that period where like you know people read Maximum Rock and Roll on Flipside, and people were into writing letters and trading stuff and trading tapes and this and that. And everybody was very connected through all that stuff. So we went to Lincoln, Nebraska, and it seemed that it seemed like a People came to see the show. You know, they would see anybody, you know, because everybody was young and excited. And it was pre-internet stuff, which is a really, you know, it was a different, it was a different world. It just was, you know. Um, so people were connected, but they weren't, you know, they weren't that connected, you know. There was still some secrecy. Like there was, you know what I mean? Like you could show up and not really know local traditions and things that people in one part of the country would be like or do or dance like or dress like or whatever you know people weren't they didn't know everything yeah so we you know and anybody you know if you were holding an instrument chances are somebody would show up and watch you play so we had this one show in lincoln nebraska and all these people came from like four different uh states in the midwest just to see the show and I was a minor punk rock celebrity because I drew stuff, and uh, you know it was. We played really good that night. Um, people were really into it, and I, I'd say that was the highlight of my experience with those guys. And I think everybody had a, a good time, you know, in general. So I think that Lincoln, Nebraska, was really good. Pittsburgh was good. Um, we played in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. That was good. Um, did you buy a pair of pants? Couple, well, what was that? Did you buy a pair of pants? Isn't that Oshkosh? Isn't that a, a brand? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I lost my shoes. I bought sandals at some point. I think these, I think they used, they used to make the overalls. Oh, okay, right. Well, I didn't. I didn't have. Uh, I, I I didn't have um, overalls, but uh, maybe I should have. Yeah. Did, <laughs> oh. yeah, that was it was very it was very exciting being away from home for your first time and you know most of the people were nice it was just kind of crazy that our parents let us go yeah. you know but yeah. we went and then we had that harrowing experience in, in Pittsburgh and that was really weird but you know everything still ended up being okay yeah so but, the, uh, the story goes for the people that haven't listened to all the podcasts is they were repeating scared straight they get to Pittsburgh play a great show and then afterwards, right. you go back to wherever your your crash pad is, and, and basically the van gets stolen with all the equipment. That's right. <laughs> so, and I found it. Yeah. I asked Scott for the keys. <laughs> hey, can I have the, I think that's how it went. I think I heard one of those guys say that they went and saw it first. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But I have this idea that I was the first one to ask for the keys and went up the street. We parked in a really bad neighborhood. The promoter was a guy named Mike Lavella, who... uh is still around. Lives in San Francisco, I think. Uh, but he was like the the hot shot king of the scene in uh, Pittsburgh at the time, and yeah, he was a nice guy. 
and we stay at his house. And, yeah. um, you know, none of us really thought about sleeping in the van. And, and uh, maybe people slept in the van at other stops, but I don't even remember that. But anyway, the point is nobody slept in the van that night, and that's the night when somebody just broke into the car and wired it or whatever and just fucking drove off. And then the next day I, you know, we're like, oh, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a weird, a weird thing, a weird reality. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So, uh, yeah, so that was a very shattering experience, and we like sort of sat around that day, the days, and then the Pittsburgh Police Department, I think, called probably Tony. I guess, like we found it. We're like, yeah, we ran, went down there, and there it was, and we hit the. Uh, u-haul trailer and it was very empty sounding <laughs> so they like yeah they like took everything they took all the equipment they took all of our personal clothes and whatever all the uh exciting doug moody uh mystic records that we were selling yeah and right before that happened though we did pretty well you know we, we were in the black and you know the tour was making money and again it was that climate where you know anybody would show up and then that was it. And then I think we tried to play one more show in Baltimore on borrowed equipment. And I do remember this. Uh, Ill Repeat did horribly. And we actually did okay. But <laughs> I think I think they just, it was Ill Repeat guys first, like, well, we're just going to go home. And I just couldn't really see the rest of us touring in Scott's blue pickup truck because, you know, on the tour, we were, a bunch of us were just driving in the back of this pickup truck, which again is, kind of crazy like i would never do that now very of the time and uh yeah people just did it all the time it's like that's really dangerous so i think i think scott and dennis were like well we can keep going we'll just sit in the back of the pickup truck it's like uh, but i already made plans to stay on the east coast and i i i'd like to think that i thought that it would be dangerous to do that and kind of stupid and um, I was friends with the COC people at the time. Uh-huh. And I called up the late Reed Mullen, <laughs> recently deceased Reed Mullen. Yeah, RIP. And I was like, hey, yeah, that's very strange. Um, and I was like, hey, I'm out here. And they were like, he was like, well, just stay put. In two days, we're going to come up to Baltimore and we're going to go see the Bad Brains reunion show in New York. So I was like, hmm, I think I'm just <laughs> going to go with these guys and see what happens. Hell yeah. And then I went back and told those guys and Scott was cool about it. And Dennis was, at the time, he was really upset with me. And, uh, you know, I don't blame that. But uh, I just couldn't really see us trying to tour on borrowed gear, driving in Scott's blue pickup truck with three people sitting in the back, you know. So that's sort of what happened. And then so everybody went home and I just stayed there at the promoter and, uh, Baltimore, this guy named Billy Stevenson, not Bill Stevenson. There was two Bill Stevensons, and he was the second one. He was a promoter uh, at the time. So I just stayed in his house for a day or two and wondered what I was fucking doing. Like, I'm fucking, I mean, like, I had nothing. I had no clothes, no possessions. And I think I got my, I think I had $200 at home, so I had my parents send it to me, which was like a million dollars back then. But yeah, sure. I was just sitting there going, 
I hope I'm doing the right thing. This is pretty, pretty weird. But that was, uh, yeah, that was like a very pivotal moment. You know, of course. That was, of course. And so what, yeah, what, that's, real that's quick. how I ended up, that's how I ended up moving. But, yeah. you know, I, I could have easily have just stayed home and just learned how to drive. But anyway. <laughs> I, I want to get into all that. It's so awesome. Um, because there's no better excuse than to go see the bath brains in 85. Come on. Yeah. You know, but well, what, yeah. what did your it, folks, it was like, what did your folks say when you called them? They were like, okay, well, they didn't really care what I did. I mean, okay. I, don't, I don't mean that in a horrible way, but they were just like busy with their own, uh, lives and problems that, yeah, I was like the middle kid. It was just easy for me to go, well, I'm just going to do this. Okay. They're like, okay, we'll send you the money. And cool. then I, Ended up staying on the East Coast for a month and a half and took a bus across the country at the end of the summer of '85. And uh, yeah, I want to I want to talk about the summer, but I I I have all these questions just about like how things like function back then because I think it's very interesting. So do they have to send you the two hundred dollars in an envelope, or do you like Western Union? Um, I'm going to assume I asked somebody that was an adult how to do that. So I'm sure Western Union must have okay. been how okay. I got the money because I just can't imagine me going, okay, well, what do you do? Do you just mail that money to me? Or, <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. So I'm sure it had to be Western Union. Okay. You know, and then do you, do you take a bus down to New York to see the Bad Rains? No, I waited up there and the CRC van picked me up and I went with those guys. Awesome. And and you'd been yeah. you'd been pen pals with them, but you hadn't met them yet. I had met them. I was pen pals with them since the summer of '84. I officially met them in January of '85 when they came out and recorded the second side, or the first side of the Animosity album. That was when I officially met them. You were in the studio with them. I was in the studio with them, not for that period, but when they did the first version of Technocracy. Okay. I, I think I'm on both versions, yelling stuff. Okay. <laughs> on the record. Yeah. Like back up singing. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you feel so, about Animosity when it came out? Did you did you know right then that I it was going to be it's that their, influential? It's their best record. It's their best record. Well, it's one of the best records ever of any genre. I, I still think so. I look, I, you know, um, it, the whole thing that happened to Reed is pretty bizarre. Uh, but, you know, that was a long time Fortunately, that was a long, long time coming. I mean, I, I you know, he was uh, a really nice guy, and he helped out a lot of people. And uh, animosity and the read I knew then—that was the person that a, a very generous person that the peak of his powers. And uh, you know, I still think that's a really good record. And uh, you know, listening to it a whole bunch in recent times, you know, hasn't really changed my opinion of it. Totally. You know? Especially side two, which is the weirdly produced side. Yeah. So they pick you up yeah. and you go, you go see Bad Brains. And do you remember? Right. Do you remember the we club? They, the, we, we, do they play mm, CBs? No. I want not CBGBs. We ended up going back up there to see the Descendants because they had that's when they reformed and they went to CBGBs and played with the band Social Unrest. Okay. And the CSC guys and Descendants really hit it off. Okay. That was the first time I met the Descendants people. Um, and that was kind of a big thrill, too. And they were really good. And uh, I think they followed COC to Boston when COC played with the Offenders. This is all like this 
month-long period after the Scared Straight tour, where it was just like, I went back to Raleigh and I would stay with various people and couch surf. And even during that time, you know, like another band, this is also funny. I actually left to go on a week-long tour in that period with the band SNFU. You know, like they, they came through with this other band, the Rhythm Pigs. Wow. From El Paso that ended up moving to San Francisco. Yeah. And they were like, ah, we know who you are, Brian Walsby. Why don't you come <laughs> with us for like five days? Yeah. You'll meet up with COC at the show that we're playing with them in Baltimore. Okay, that sounds good. I have no possessions of money. I'll just go with you guys. Sure. Awesome. In the name of punk rock. So even during that time, I went with those guys. It was just really ridiculous. And how yeah. good were they in 85? What is that? How good were they in 85? They had to be raging. SNFU? Yeah. They were killer. They were, they were like one of the best bands I'd ever seen. They were, that was when they got that guy, Dave Bacon, to play bass. So it's basically the the second album version of the band, which mm-hmm. is sort of the best version, at least for that that you know second. They were great. They were really nice guys, and they were the first Canadians I met. Canadians are, you know, there's this something that's just slightly different for whatever reason, I, I I never was able to put my foot on it no, or put my finger some, on it or whatever. There's something genuine about them. Yeah. yeah there's Canadians not really a lot people. of pretense. There's, there's no pretense. Yeah. And uh, so but they were great guys. And uh, so it was a very exciting, you know, so the, the tour was exciting. The adventures after the tour were also equally exciting. And when I ended up going back to Simi Valley, the rest of the guys in Scared Straight, you know, they, they didn't hold it against me and, you know, they, nobody was mad. They, they found this guy, Tim Williams, to play drums. And uh, I just went back to hanging out with them and I just ended up going everywhere with them at their other shows and, you know, no nobody was mad at me or anything. And then Tim couldn't go on that tour, so they were like, oh, do you want to go? And I was like, yes. So, so that happened, and then afterwards, uh, that was when I decided I was going to move to Raleigh, and so they you, kept so, going. So you went on the second Scared Straight tour as well? Yeah. Okay, Can you, let's talk about that. So this is Scared Straight and No Effects? Scared Straight and the Grim. Scared Straight and the Grim. Jordan Burns was the drummer. He let me use his nice drum set. Okay. And the Grim were terrible. Well, they weren't <laughs> really terrible. They were just real slow. I mean, I, I think they're like, they were, you know, Tim was a singer, Bob, that's a guitar player. He traveled separately. You know, he was the smartest guy on that tour. Uh, you know, another adult doing adult things. <laughs> and uh, let's see, what else? Who else was in it? Yeah, and Jordan, and he was the drummer. And um, so we toured with them. I think Tim and Scott kind of worked on that tour together. And then that tour also meant that we'd meet up with Entropy, this band from LA, and NoFX. And we, we knew the NoFX guys. And the NoFX guys were nice guys, Mike and Eric. And they were just awful. They were, I mean, you know, not like Scared Straight was so great, but they were legitimately awful. No, this, the, the first two seven inches are not good. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, this, you know, like, those guys were always nice. And, you know, I just never would have guessed that if anybody back then that could have done what they achieved, 
I never would have guessed in a million years No Effects would be the band that that would do that. You know. Well, if you, if you watch if you, if you watch RKL long enough, you're going to get good. If you want to, if you want to try um, to top them, yeah. But like, by the time they became famous, did they still sound like RKL? Isn't that when they sounded like Bad? Like, you know, when Bad Religion did that one record that everybody liked. Yeah, they they went a, they went a little more melodic RKL, but like in their transition time, if you listen to them on. Like uh, yeah, I mean, know, I wasn't. It's, it's I definitely, wasn't around, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't here for any of that. So it's like all that stuff. Like to this day, I don't. You know, like there's some stuff associated with with that world that I really like a lot. But it, it only was years later. Like I really like that band Propagandy. I think they're like a great band. Of course, but I don't like any of that early stuff. I just like the stuff like now going backwards a little bit. I don't. You know, I just wasn't around for that stuff. I don't think I would have liked it. You know. But I do like how they are now, and they're really nice people. Um, but for the most part, I don't really know about any of that stuff, like Bad Religion or No Effects. You know, I like the first Bad Religion record, okay, when it came out. I like I like all of it, and and I especially like the the Ten Foot Pole Rev LP. I love it, love it. Well, you know, like I heard that record, and I was like, you know, it, a lot of it may not have been my thing, but there's no denying that it's way better in every way than the scared, <laughs> scared straight well, of course it's it's awesome and there's a good there, and there's a couple songs i really think are, are are good i think like i think paulie you know like i i think as they went on like you know i do legitimately think some of that stuff is, is good and to me it sounds kind of a little bit different than some of the other stuff it does it's a little riffier and also they uh they they do barely like any distortion on the guitar for like a very yeah. well produced album, so it's a it's an interesting sound. It sounds like nothing that came before it or after it, and those are kind of the albums that stand out to me. Is you know when it's just like how could you ever recreate this thing? Like it's almost like a a fluke, you know. Sure. So. Sure. I I love it. Sure. I. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, like I'm not as familiar with that world as I was with the world that we all came out of. But you know, I'd say that. Pretty much everybody from back then that I remember, you know, was a pretty nice person. You know, but it's just not something I was—I wasn't around to be a part of, and I don't think I would have been a part of. But you know, you know, whatever. Right. All so, that, so all you, those people are really nice and good for them. Because you moved to North Carolina in '86 or '87. '86. Okay. And and what do you do with your life for the next like couple years? I grew up in public and didn't draw and I played music and local bands mainly and worked in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Hey, can you hold on one second? Absolutely. Okay. So in, in 89, this is kind of pivotal to you, I think, because you do your first artwork for the Melvins. Yeah. And you do the oven sandwich. Yes. Okay. Right. Well, I met them. I moved to uh, I moved to North Carolina, and I think like literally two months later, the Melvins came through touring with RKL, which is kind of funny. It's awesome. This is like '86, summer of '86, and they played. And I think I had read about the Melvins and Maximum Rock Roll, oddly enough. And uh, you know, they were right up my alley, and they were instantly nice people. And uh, I just became friends with them. And one thing led to another, and that just led to me drawing that cover for whatever reason. 
Yeah, and 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 starting a lifelong friendship and and partnership because you tour with them to this day. Yeah, I've spent the last ten years working for them. I yeah. sell merchandise, or you know, um, yeah, you know. So um, uh, I was very fortunate that I met those guys at the time, and um, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been friends with them ever since. And I guess ten years ago, that's when um, there was an opportunity to do that. And I've done that ever since. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty fortunate. You know, it's not going to last forever. Uh, every year that goes by, I always think, well, this is, this has to be it, you know? Uh, and somehow it keeps going. Well, they're, uh, they're a band that it, you got to hope never breaks up because they're, they're timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people, a lot of, you know, the people that go to see them are pretty loyal, but also, you know, a lot of times the people, you know, when you get to be like 35 years old, a lot of people just sort of stop going to shows and do other things like raise a family or have kids or, you know, just don't want to go to shows anymore. And I'm certainly, you know, <laughs> I became one of those people too. But uh, the weird thing about them is that there's always somebody that shows up and replaces them, some younger people. So, yeah. you know, it's not like... Uh, it's not like the people that see them are all people my age or the band's age, you know? So no, and it's, it's, ti- it's timeless music. It's not necessarily just for young people. So it can, it spans. Yeah. It spans it's, definitely not, it's, it's definitely not youth crew, straight edge, hardcore or <laughs> whatever. And, and those guys have had as much punk rock history as, as anybody, you know, they have as much punk rock history as, uh, you know, Mike from no effects or, or whoever. You know, so yeah. in in eighty nine, then also you do you do two bands. You do Snake Nation, and you do yes. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. A wax with two W's. Yeah, wax. Okay. Uh, wax be... was with the guy that ended up forming Merge Records and was in the band Super Chunk. Mm-hmm. Mac McCon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Snake Nation was like Mike Dean and Woody Weatherman playing without Reed and they asked me to play because of whatever reason and it was half old COC songs that were never recorded and then stuff that everybody made up really quickly yeah but both uh, both those bands are really cool I think the Stagnation is very uh, like if people like the first Blast record um, I love the first Blast record yeah they could they could really they could really get down with that Stagnation that's cool well, it's kind of funny you say that because there's definitely a few moments there where I was trying to rip off Bill, and uh, I know that the COC guys liked liked the Blast guys very much, and uh, yeah, well, that's cool, man. I mean, I the Snake Nation record, it's a little, I don't know, it's a little, I don't want to say disappointing. I just kind of wish it sounded a little bit better, but I've heard that's probably the one thing that I was lucky enough to be a part of that I've heard the most from people over the years. Cause I know some people really like that record. Um, I don't really think that Mike and Woody think too much of it either, but I'm sure they've had to hear people tell them that they like it too. <laughs> I think I might like it the most out of the three of us. Yeah. And circling um, back, it was circ- definitely, it, it was definitely a thrill to play with those guys. Yeah. Yeah, circling back to Straight Edge Hardcore, you're on uh, you're on Caroline the year after Youth Today, so that's kind of that's cool. right. <laughs> yeah, they gave us like six thousand dollars, and we pocketed 
half of it. <laughs> so we each got a thousand dollars, and then we spent three thousand going to some guy that Woody knew that had no experience recording that music. And we, I remember me and Mike Dean. I clearly remember this. We were like, we were worried about whether or not this guy. He was a nice guy. He, you know, it's that same story of. Hey, we're going to record this stuff with somebody that we don't think understands where we're coming from, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> we like, uh, I think we like made a cassette of Black Flags flipping in, like a song from that, mm-hmm. and then a song from the first Black Sabbath record, and then maybe a song from the first Melvin's record, Louis Port's Treatments. Yeah. I think we like, and we gave it to him, and it was just like, it was totally pointless. Halfway through the recording, he kind of said to us, oh, I think I, I totally know what you guys are going for now. And we're like, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said that he thought we sounded like Foghat. <laughs> we like, eh, no, I'm not trying to sound like Foghat. No, you're supposed to say power yeah. of expression. Come on. Now we're trying to do it. Man, we're trying to sound like, <laughs> you know, Nightmare and our explanation. Yeah. Those prolonged Greg and breaks. Yeah. No. But um, no, but it, it was fine. I just wish it sounded better. But, you know, it's there for history, and, and people have been very nice to me about that record over the years. Are, are so you I singing on it as well? I sing on one song. Okay. You, you can call it that. Okay. And then um, I, know. I think it's called I Will Never Shake You. Okay. You know, it's, it's, just, it's terrible. You know, you know, like a lot of people in punk rock, since people can't really sing for the most part, that whole thing of, well, I guess I'll do it. You know, like sure. somebody that isn't really a singer that can't sing. Sure. Somebody has to always do that. But in Snake Nation, there were three people that can do it. <laughs> and Mike, I think Mike did Mushrooms at the time in the studio. And we, uh, I don't know what happened. It was just like, it was it was what it was. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. All right. So jumping way ahead, in uh, in 09, Tony Cortez does a, another Nardcore comp. And he reaches out to yeah. you to draw the cover. So you... You're able to get some redemption and not have someone trace over your stuff, right? Yeah. Well, you know, he said, I'll give you $150. That's probably what he said. And I went, okay, sure, I'll do it. Because Tony was always a really nice guy. And I'm sure he still is a nice guy. So uh, Tony rules. There was no problem. The mayor of Austin. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, He's always been a very nice person. And, you know, so I had no problem redrawing whatever you wanted for that amount of money. So Yeah, and it's cool. And Although I, the, I think the depiction think of me is very that, ugly. I'm sorry. But that's okay. I I look way better on the uh when you do like the Nardfest art. I, I, I think I just look yeah. more I look more handsome in a hat. Yeah. Well I'm I'm glad. Well I think I also redeem myself now that I know who you are <laughs> over these these years. <laughs> like I think that insert thing I gave you is like probably and it ended up being the best looking thing that I've drawn in that style. You know, like, oh, well, I'm, well, I'm glad that happened. You know, like, oh, this looks pretty good. And I think you look pretty good, hopefully. No, I think it looks hopefully. great. That's, we, have, we haven't talked about that. The people don't know that uh, you did a drawing. And basically the apex of your career is doing a drawing for the, the fourth Retaliate LP. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about. So no, sure. I mean that was so that was so fun to get you in, and just so people know, um, you know, you never know who how people are going to act when you reach out to them blindly. But uh, 
you know, oh, yeah. you're, you're so approachable. And I think it comes from, you know, your lifetime of, of writing letters, right? And then and running into people that are either friendly or not friendly and you decide to be a certain way because you know how people want, you know, you know how you well, want to be treated. Sure. Well, it's also like if somebody is, comes up to you and they like something that you did, regardless of what you think about it, it's like nobody has to be nice to you. Nobody has to pay you a compliment. Nobody has to want to pay you money to do something for them. You know, nobody has to give a shit. So the fact that people give a shit is a nice thing. So you should, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, you should always be nice to, to people because, you know, nobody has to be nice. Nobody has to do anything for you. So if, yeah. if people like something that you did, how can that be a bad thing? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, so the, the long, that, the long, of, the long and short of it is that if uh, anyone wants to reach out to you to do something, just do it. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you, Brian? Well, my email address <laughs> for the people that want to spell it out is reluctantking at hotmail.com. I'm also one of those people that um, I have a website that I don't do a whole lot with, but I sell stuff through it, and that's brianwalsby.net. And I am one of those idiots that's on social media, like most of the world. And I just go under my name, Brian Walsby, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And you can reach me through either of those. And uh, it, the Instagram stuff seems to be kind of picking up a little bit. Uh, since Facebook goes through these periods of just, you know, why am I even doing this anymore? It's depressing. Yeah. But, um, but you're pretty prolific so, on there. You're, you're posting stuff all the time. It's pretty cool. And then also on the, well, on the brianwalsby.net, you, you do have a store. So for fans of his art, um, like for instance, my friend Micah got me, like you did a scared straight shirt. You put out the art on a shirt yeah. and it's like, Oh, this is awesome. Like, you know, it's, it's like, man, I really wish I could get a scared straight shirt. Well, here's a guy that has it on his website. So you should. Yeah. That was just like, Charles was like, well, maybe you should do that. And it was like, you know, a chance to redraw something that maybe I wasn't very good at drawing at the time. And that scared straight record is certainly up there with something that, well, yeah, I could, you know, it's kind of not fair in a way. It's like, cause it's not, it doesn't look really the same, but it's like, man, you can tell what some it of is. That stuff just looks, yeah, it's, it's what it is, but it's like, man, you know, <laughs> an artwork over and the walk together, you know, in the scared straight, it's like, man, if I can redraw that and somebody is willing to buy it, I should just do it. Absolutely. So, um, so, so thank you for, for, uh, for getting that shirt or your friend for buying. It for you. Yeah. Shout out Micah, Micah Wolf, the man. Thanks man. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so, and, and thanks yeah. so much for doing this, Brian. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm sorry for like kind of rushing you to, toward the end here, but, um, no, I, I definitely appreciate it. I, I've always, you know, I, I still talk to, uh, to Scott, you know, we we're, we're still in touch and, uh, you know, I kind of talked to Dennis a little bit and I saw Steve Carnan on the last Melbourne store, which is crazy. Haven't seen him in 30 years, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever the older people that remember me from back then have always been nothing but nice to me. And, you know, I definitely appreciate that. So it's kind of cool to talk about some of that stuff with somebody that's interested. So, you know, I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like you've been well represented? With this interview? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I think so. Okay. Yeah. I just got to make hey, sure. I, I, I got to tell the Nerdcore cover story, which is a, you know, that's a, that's a great story. For yeah, sure. Absolutely. 
you know, being handed this horribly recreated, you know, here you go, mate. The thing about Doug Moody was he always, the joke was that he would uh, pay you in pizza slices. Here yeah. you go, mate. <laughs> like some nice slice of cheese pizza. Yeah. We're drawing the Nordcore cover. <laughs> sure, Doug. Sounds great. Yeah. I got, I got to get him. cold. I got to get him. He's, uh, you know, cause you've talked to him before, so you know. But like for all the people that haven't heard him talk, he's just a a guy with the gift of gab. Like he will go and go and go. I so. mean, I, I just remember he had an English accent, and I just thought it was really weird, a little creepy that he hung out with lots of young men in Hollywood. <laughs> well, everyone's got their thing. <laughs> but no judgment. Well, for there's me. probably no, there's, there's probably nothing more to it than that. But you know, looking back, it's like that's kind of weird. But maybe it's not. You know. Hey, he wanted he wanted punk rock to to make it, dude. And someone had to put out that Rat Pack seven inch. Yeah, the sound the sound of young America. We'll put out the Manifest Destiny Rat Pack record, and we'll put <laughs> you know we'll we'll put out that habeas corpus box set. <laughs> the, that's the one thing that never came out is the habeas corpus seven inch. But uh, I don't wait. know why everybody else came out. They, I know. You know. I was waiting. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Anyway, thanks Cry. so much for your time, Brian. I had no problem, Zach. Thank you for calling me. I appreciate it. All right. Much appreciated. Goodbye.